Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiev, and it's great to be with you here this wonderful, fabulous afternoon in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we are gearing up to yet another Jewish holiday. You know, our Jewish calendar is filled with so many days of note, and some are biblical holidays, such as Pesach and Shavuos and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Shemini Atzeres. And others are rabbinical holidays, such as Hanukkah and Purim. And then there are many days that aren't holidays per se, but are days of significance. And the truth is, if we would tally up all of these days, we would find approximately 65 significant days in the course of the year. That averages to about five and a half days per month. And I'm talking, of course, not just about the major holidays. I'm including all the fast days. There are six fast days of the year, two biblical for rabbinic. And then every month we have Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of each month, which could be one or two days. And then you have holidays such as Tuba Shvat and Tuba Av and Erev Pesach and Lag Omer and so many others. And of course, if you include all the Hasidish holidays, the days of significance, it will be much more than that too. And so we're always either gearing up for a Jewish day of note or enjoying and celebrating one or basking in the afterglow of one. Now, some of these dates are better known than others. For example, more people know about Pesach than about Pesach Sheni, which is tonight, the second Pesach. Now, what are we talking about? We just had Pesach, didn't we? And could you believe it that it's already 30 days since our first Seder, which is, of course, the date tonight, the 14th of Iyar, which is Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. What is this festival all about? Why is it necessary to have a second Pesach? Isn't one Pesach enough? I'm not sure if any other holidays get, in fact, I can't think of any others. I wouldn't mind a second Purim or a second Simchas Torah. But why is it we're getting a Second Pesach, what's this all about? So first, a bit of history is in order. On the night before the exodus from Egypt, God instructed the Jewish people to enjoy a special kind of meal. They were to slaughter a sheep, roast it on a spit, and eat the roasted meat for dinner. And this, of course, was the first ever Korban Pesach, or as it's known in English, as the Paschal Lamb. And they were famously told to collect the blood from the sheep and to paint it on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. And they were told that they were to eat that lamb at home, not to leave their homes until the morning. It was a form of quarantine, if we're to think of more recent memory. And indeed, when they came from their homes in the morning, they found the entire country in a panic. The whole Egyptian population was begging, urging, beseeching them to just leave. Every firstborn in Egypt had died except for Pharaoh and the Jewish firstborns. Of course, that was the great miracle, the 10th plague. And their Egyptian neighbors offered them anything, whatever you want, just go. Bribery, corruption, whatever it takes, leave Egypt. The Jews spent the morning collecting valuables from their Egyptian neighbors. And most Egyptians were happy to give the Jews Anything they asked for. Maybe others needed a little bit extra encouragement, but give they did. And at the stroke of midday, the Jews left en masse 
each one laden with an abundance of material goods. This, of course, is what we celebrate on Pesach. When God instructed Moshe Rabbeinu Moses on the Karbam Pesach, that Paschal Lamb dinner, Hashem mentioned that this would be an annual ritual on the night of Pesach, but only after the Jews would enter Israel. So no one expected that they would actually bring a carbon Pesach while they were in the desert. And this is in the Torah, in the book of Shemos. And at that point, the Jews were expected to enter Israel before the following Pesach. They thought that's where they're going, straight from Egypt, going to pick up a Torah at Mount Sinai on the way, and they would go straight to the Holy Land. We know, of course, that there were delays, which is why now Jews invented ways. And they were stuck in the desert due to the sin of the golden calf, or really more significantly the Chet Hamaradlin, the story of the spies, which they didn't believe that the land of Israel was ready for them. And there were spies who actually had negative disparaging reports to say about the land, which is what wound them staying there for 40 years. But at that point in time, they expected to be going straight to Israel. And by the, ne- by the next Pesach, they would already have been there. Over the course of that year, many things happened. And they received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then there was the tragic story of the golden calf and everything else. And that's when they were told as a sign for, to secure forgiveness. They were told that they were going to build the tabernacle, the Mishkan, which they did. And to erect it on the first of Nisan, which is two weeks before the first anniversary of the Exodus. At this point, God surprised them with this unexpected directive. Because they expected that they would be in, they didn't expect to be in the desert a year later still. And God said that they could offer the Korban Pesach, they could bring the Paschal Lamb in the desert. And it is fascinating. It's in the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, which we're going to be reading in a couple of weeks' time. And there, in fact, Hashem says to the Jewish people, in the first month of the second year from the Exodus, that all the children of Israel should bring the Korban Pesach at the appointed time. And bring it in the afternoon on the 14th of that month, which was the day before the Exodus, meaning the anniversary of the Karban Pesach, just like the story as it was the year they left Egypt. Moshe instructed the children of Israel to do so, and they brought the Karban Pesach in the Sinai Desert in the first month, the month of Nisan, on the afternoon of the 14th day with all the instructions that God provided Moshe. Now the thing is, there were certain people, as the Torah says, who were tmeim l'nefesh, who were ritually unclean. Why? It says l'nefesh adam, because they had come in contact with corpses, with, with a dead person rather, in the more literal translation. And therefore they could not bring the carbon Pesach on that day. And these people came to Moshe. Now, Moshe was used to complaints, but let's hear. They said to Moshe, they said, We are ritually unclean 
let's, I, I keep skipping that word, lenefesh adam, because we come in contact with a dead person. And here are the key words. They said, lama nigara. Why should we be deprived? Why should we be excluded from bringing the Karba Pesach in the appropriate time as God had instructed? Now, of course, we know that the laws of the Karban Pesach tell us, and in fact, when God said to do so, that they were to offer it, it would be with all of the statutes and ordinances, with all the instructions, the rules that God had given it. Which means that a person who's ritually impure wasn't allowed to participate. Now these people are saying, what are we supposed to do? Because it's not their fault that they are ritually impure. They are engaged in a mitzvah of carrying the bones, the corpses, the the coffins, whatever you want to call it, of people who were no longer part of the living. Masha wasn't sure what to do. The Masha says, Imdu, stand by. The Eshma I will hear what God instructs me to tell you. Masha takes instructions from on high. And indeed, Hashem said to Masha, saying, Tell the children of Israel as follows. Any person who becomes unclean from being in contact with the dead. Or something else. Perhaps they are on a distant journey. They are far away for whatever reason. I mean, for the people in the desert, it would seem irrelevant because who's far away? All the Jews were together then. But that's commentary. And continuing Moshe's instruction, what he heard from God at that time. Very powerful words. Or whether with you or in any future generations. This is what Moshe is saying. So this is an instruction, not just for that time, but for all time to come. God says, they could still have the opportunity to bring this Paschal Pesach offering. When? They'll do so in the second month, which is the month we're in now, the month of Iyar. When the time is given, Bain Arbaim in the afternoon, parenthetically, which is why we still say Tachanon tonight, because the festival does not technically begin yet tomorrow morning, because they would offer the Paschal Lamb, the Karban Pesach, in the afternoon. And then the verse concludes, Amatzas Umerarim Yachluhu, they would do it just as you would do on the first Pesach, you bring the Karban Pesach and eat it with matzah and all that mara relish. And the same rules. They should not leave over any of the meat until the next morning. And the same thing. Don't break any bones. They would make it in accordance with all the same rules and regulations as the regular Karban Pesach just as it would be done in the first month. For these people, they will do it in the second month. As the saying goes, give them a second chance. And that is quite amazing. And I want to take a moment to analyze what the Torah says. Jews were not expecting to bring the Karban Pesach that year because 
they were originally instructed in Shemos that when they would get to the land of Israel. But God surprised them and told them that they could bring one in the desert. And it's fascinating that this was the only time, actually, throughout all the years, the 40 years that they were stuck in the desert, that they brought the carbon Pesach. They were never again instructed to bring it until they entered Israel. So why did God make this unexpected exception? Well, when God gave the instructions for the carbon Pesach, Hashem instructed that any apostate, any person who worships idols or doesn't fully believe in God was not permitted to participate in the carbon Pesach. And as we mentioned, the first Pesach in the desert occurred after the Jews had worshipped the carbon Pesach. So though God had already informed Moshe that he had forgiven their sin, and in fact that's what the building of the Mishkan was about, to atone for the sin of the golden calf. And their sacrifices had been accepted by God. But nevertheless, the Jews did not know whether their status as apostates, as non-believers, as idolaters, was fully lifted. And the proof of this would only come if they would be permitted to bring the carbon Pesach, which is forbidden to idol worshippers. And here, God gives them this opportunity. Rather than make them wait for 40 years and be anxious. Were we forgiven? Weren't we forgiven? God made this exception and asked them to bring the carbon Pesach that particular year, the year after the Exodus, the year of or the year following the sin of the golden calf. And now they knew beyond a doubt that they had been fully forgiven. Some Jews, though, were in the state of impurity. And because they had come in contact with the dead, which by Jewish law would render them ritually impure, and therefore they could not participate because people in a state of impurity are not allowed to offer the carbon Pesach until seven days pass during which they perform the special purification ritual process. And seven days had not yet passed for these individuals. So they were still in a state of impurity. Now knowing that they were not permitted to bring the carbon Pesach, they approached Moshe Rabbeinu and they asked Lamanigara, why should they be excluded while the entire nation brings the carbon Pesach? Now, of course, who were these Jews? How did they come in contact with the dead? Well, we don't assume that they were engaged with burying their own family or even general community members because virtually no Jews died during that period in the desert. Only later on, after the Chet HaMaraglim, the sin of the spies that we discussed before, did people start to die. And we know this because two censuses were taken of the Jews that year. One had been taken about six months earlier and the other would be taken only two weeks later. And the two censuses actually match up perfectly. It doesn't include the under-20s because they were not included in the census. The newborns weren't included. But Rashi there tells us that no Jews died during this time. So then how did the Jews come in contact with the dead? Well, the Gemara discusses this. And our sages offer different opinions. Rabbi Yossi Aglili says it was those who carried 
Yosef had Sadik's casket. Rabbi Akiva says it was Mishael and Elitzafan who Moshe had instructed to remove the remains of Nadav and Avihu, who we read about in last week's parsha, when they died, the sons of Aaron Akoim. Reb Yitzchak says that either group would have had plenty of time to become purified to her because the last time they touched Yosef's casket or Nadav and Avihu's remains and the carbon Pesach. So therefore, he concludes that this was a mace mitzvah. Somebody who did die in the desert and the seventh day was still beyond Erev Pesach. So they couldn't be purified. Either way, the point is they were not able to participate. And of course, this raises an important question. They knew exactly why they were excluded. It was simple, because they were ritually impure. Why did they ask Lama Nigara? Why are they asking this question of why they're excluded? They know exactly why. What made them think that they should be included? You know that certain times you take certain risks. As a Hatzalah paramedic, we know that if I'm going on a Hatzalah call to attend to an emergency, then I will not be able to be part of whatever might be happening at that time. I know exactly why. If they had a rationale for being included, why didn't they say it to Moshe? They say, why should we be excluded? But when we take a closer look at those words, we'll actually see that they did have a rationale and that they shared it with Moshe. They said, why should we be excluded from this opportunity to be part of this from being their exact words. Why should we be excluded from bringing this offering to God in its appointed time along with together with the children of Israel? And I think the key is those last words along with the children of Israel. The argument was had we been people who regard ourselves as just mere individuals, we would expect to be judged just on that, on on our individual merits alone. Which in this case means we were impure and we would understand why we're being excluded. But we don't regard ourselves as individuals. In fact, an argument can be made that since they took care of a nes mitzvah, which is an obligation of the entire community, which you know, their impurity, their tumah, was an extension of the community. It's a communal responsibility to take care of the dead. They were tumah because they were involved in handling the corpse of someone who everyone had responsibility to take care of. It's just that they were the ones who fulfilled the obligation on behalf of the entire community. If they represented the community, they have to be considered a part of the community. So they were saying, basically, that they feel themselves very much connected to the community. And who cares then that as individuals they were impure? This is a matter that pertains to everyone. I think this is a very powerful lesson for all of us. 
The fact that God accepted the rationale and God granted the request tells us that when we include ourselves in the larger community, God treats us as such. God doesn't look at our individual faults. Rather, God accords us the same privileges and allowances that he accords the entire community. Whether we deserve it or not, it's not only when we isolate ourselves from the community that God provides for us on our own merits. God is saying you're part of the community. As the Mishnah says, don't separate yourself from the community. And I think this is an important, powerful lesson for all of us as we gear up for Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is a day to celebrate the community. Pesach Sheni tonight is a time for us to celebrate community. We can't allow ourselves to forget about friends, about neighbors, about all of us. We're all part of a collective. If we treat ourselves as individuals, God will view us as individuals and treat us that way, on our own merits alone. But if we treat ourselves as members of the community, God will view us accordingly. God will grant us the privileges that God grants to the community. So on that note, with Lagva Omer coming, I urge and want to remind everyone about this great communal event happening on Monday evening at the Great Park Shul, the annual Shmuza. And this year, following the AI, it's not about artificial intelligence. It's about all in it together, all integrated. Let's be there at the Great Park Shul this coming Monday to celebrate Lagba Omer. Well, tonight and tomorrow, we celebrate Pesach Sheni. We'll be back in a moment to talk a little bit more about this great, special, unique, and in fact, biblical holiday that is not so known. We'll be back. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And we are talking about some of the very special Jewish holidays. In fact, tonight, Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, which is not as well known of a holiday as some of the others. And so we did a quick recap how on the night before the Exodus, the Jews were instructed to offer the carbon Pesach to slaughter, to roast, to eat a lamb in their homes, not to leave their homes till the next morning. And the next morning, all of Egypt was in a panic. And all the firstborn Egyptians who had died in that plague and now the Egyptians were begging, beseeching, urging the Jews to leave. And by midday, one month ago, we celebrated Pesach, celebrating how God had led the Jews out of Egypt. Now the Jews packed up and left laden with all these riches. And they were told when they arrive in Israel, which was the route they were taking to go straight to Israel, they would offer the carbon Pesach every single year as an annual tradition to remember and to commemorate and to reenact that exodus, which of course we know that the power, the potential, the symptoms, the energy of a holiday recur each year on that day. And so each year we have that opportunity to tap into that energy. And with Pesach Sheni starting tonight, it is our opportunity to tap into the message and to the energy of Pesach Sheni, which we're talking about today. We talked about how throughout the coming months after the golden calf and after the other incidents such as the sin of the spies, they wound up stuck in the desert for the next 40 years. But on the first anniversary of the Exodus, while they were still in the desert, God surprised them with his instruction to bring a carbon Pesach. 
And we know that some people were, imp- were impure and they were forbidden by biblical law to bring that carbon Pesach. So they asked to bring the carbon Pesach because they said, Lamanigara, why should we be deprived? And they were granted a special makeup date one month later. And we're discussing why is it that God made this exception for them? And so far, we analyzed a very important lesson that firstly, the idea that God had forgiven them fully for the sin of the golden calf, because of course, they were in the state of idolaters, apostates who are forbidden to bring the carbon Pesach after they worship the golden calf. And by instructing them to bring the carbon Pesach, God showed them that it was, they were no longer considered to be in that state of apostasy. Without this opportunity, maybe they would have waited 40 years to learn that they'd been forgiven. The fact that God offered them to bring the carbon Pesach in the desert made it clear that they were forgiven. But the other problem, that the Jews who were impure and they believed themselves to not be eligible to participate, they brought the complaint to Moshe and they argued that they shouldn't be judged in their own merits by the standards of themselves, but rather as a group, not as individuals, because they were taking on the responsibilities of the entire community, regardless which opinion of the Talmud that we mentioned, whether it was that they were handling the remains of Yosef HaTzadik, or that of Nadav Aviu, or that of a mace mitzvah of a person who died regardless of which reason it was, they were taking on a communal responsibility and therefore they didn't want to be judged as individuals who should be deprived of this because they, by a fault of their own, didn't participate in the carbon Pesach. But they were doing something the whole community needed them to do. And therefore God accepted their argument. And of course, this teaches us a very powerful lesson, how we have to remain connected constantly and to be there for ourselves, for our community, for our family. And it's very, very important throughout, which is part of the reason we run our Chabad Seniors programs and give you an opportunity if you want to be part of volunteering to visit seniors in any capacity. It's a reminder that we're all together as a community. It's a reminder of life Omer coming up a day to celebrate with the community. But there's more lessons I would like to analyze and glean from the story. You know, Maisha Rabbeinu replied to the question. Maisha says, Imdu, stand by, and I'll hear what God instructs me to tell you. What does God say? And God swiftly consented to this makeup date. God said it is exactly for one month later. They had enough time to purify themselves from their state of ritual impurity. And this brings up another question. Although they felt themselves to be integral members of the community, why did God make such an unprecedented exclusion for them? There are lots of Jews who feel connected to the community, who are not granted special reprieves when they miss out on their individual obligations, right? If this is the only makeup date in the entire Torah, I don't know of any other. 
there are what we call Yemei Tashlumin, which is the days that if a person missed out on bringing the sacrifices on a particular holiday, that they were able to do it. But those are not new days that were designated uniquely and specifically as makeup days. They are additional dates after the holiday that if a person wasn't able to offer it, they had a few days to make it up. That's all. But here, we're talking about people who were ritually impure, and they get a date a complete month later. If you miss celebrating Shabbos, or Yom Kippur, or Hanukkah, you can't get a makeup date. It doesn't work. But yet, for Pesach, there is a makeup date. One month later, Pesach Sheni, which we celebrate tonight and tomorrow. Why? What did they do to deserve this? And the answer will surprise you by its simplicity. The answer is, it's because they asked. Not just asked, but they demanded. As if their very lives depended on it. They said, why should we be excluded? It's not a polite question. It's a demand, an insistent demand. When we just demand something from God, from our very depths, when we yearn for it with every fiber of our being, God steps in and God provides it. And this is because we are God's children. No matter how important and how busy a father might be, father makes time and space for their children's request. You know, think of the analogy of a busy CEO of a Fortune 500 company who's responsible for the salary of thousands of employees. It takes weeks to secure an appointment with them. And when you finally get to see them, they can only spare a minute for you. Yet, this very busy person, when he gets a call from his distraught child in the middle of a busy day, hopefully, they set aside everything and respond. And those who don't, such as famously Sam Walton of Walmart, expressed his remorse, his regret for that. Yet we are God's children. And when a child is distraught and begs from the depths of their heart, God sets aside all considerations and God grants their entreaties. God is there for them. And it's even more profound when you consider that the people who prevented from bringing the sacrifice were not restricted by man-made laws, which you can say, you know, this is something that we could find some wiggle room. They were restricted by biblical God-made laws. The Torah forbids bringing a sacrifice when you're in a state of impurity. How could they have hoped to get around it? Yet they cried out to God with every fiber of their being, and got what they wanted. God granted them this opportunity. By the way, in life, I think this is the kind of thing that can happen as well. Some people, if you've been to Chicago, you know there's a very famous tower there today. In It's been there for many, many years. It's called today the Willis Tower. But it wasn't always known as Willis Tower. And in fact, it's a fascinating story. You can probably Google the story yourself. On, uh, let's see it on Wikipedia or wherever else this story is. I remember once hearing how Sears Tower, which is what it was known when I was 
growing up. It's one of the tallest buildings in America, one of the biggest skyscrapers in the world. And the story that I heard was that when Mr. Willis, he was being interviewed on a TV show, how he got the building renamed from Sears Tower to Willis Tower was something fascinating. You see, Sears Tower was going through some troubles. Maybe this is in the 90s. I'm not even certain myself. And before you knew it, lots of businesses were going mechula, as they say here. Remember Stutterfords and other big brands here in South Africa that went under? Well, Sears, which was a major department store throughout the United States, was going through some trouble. And they were no longer the anchor tenants of the building. I might not be getting the story accurate, but Willis Insurance Company, I think that's what they were, were invited to become a new anchor tenant. And Mr. Willis took the chance and asked, would you rename the building to Willis Tower? And when he was asked by a TV anchor, how did you get them to do it? He says, I just asked. And life, certainly, if you don't ask, you usually won't get it. And this story tells us the only holiday that has a makeup date is Pesach. Why? Because the people asked. No one ever did that for any other mitzvah. Perhaps if someone had demanded a makeup date for a different Jewish holiday, maybe that would too also be granted. I think it's just an important lesson. Sometimes there are mitzvahs that, for whatever reason, a person's not able to do. Maybe a father is forced to work at night, can't help his child with homework. A mother's overwhelmed and doesn't have enough energy and patience for whatever mitzvah it might be, for whatever thing it might be. Think of the message and lesson of Pesach Sheni. It teaches us that if there's a mitzvah that we cannot do due to whatever circumstances as we know in this story, we should plead with God from the depths of our hearts and God will find a way to make it happen. Help will arrive in the most unexpected ways, just as it happened for our ancestors in the desert and for us too. Think of any opportunity, like in Sears Tower becoming Willis Tower. When we do our part, when we ask, we certainly have an opportunity. God will answer, and those who live up to their divine image can find the place in their heart to answer to. And so, do the same. Sometimes we grow cynical. We think that God doesn't pay attention to our prayers, and that any improvements, whatever happens, whatever changes, what happened with or without our prayers. But the Pesach story, Pesach Sheni story reminds us that God is personal. To Hashem, we aren't just faceless, nameless beings. We are God's dear children. God pays close attention to our words. If we cry with authenticity and sincerity, God will listen. God's response is not always necessarily what we hoped for. But just like the Jews who protested, maybe they didn't know what would be. They were impure. But God answered, and it was an affirmative and positive response exactly to their question. God gave them what they asked for. Or maybe not exactly on Pesach, but they got Pesach Sheni. Sometimes God knows 
that what we ask for is not necessarily in our best interest. But God always listens. And God responds in ways that are ultimately in our best interest. So for them, they got an answer. If it wasn't exactly on Pesach, well, they got a second chance. And I think this explains another anomaly about this whole story. This story, which if you look in the Torah, is related in the ninth chapter of the book of Bamidbar Numbers, occurred on the first anniversary of the Exodus. And this is surprising because the first eight chapters in the book relate stories and events that occurred two weeks after the story. So why are the events chronicled out of order? Why is the earlier event told later? And there are several ways to understand this. But one of the answers offered by the commentary Rashi, the most famous biblical commentator, is that this is actually a shameful saga for the Jews. So God wanted to delay the telling of a disgraceful story. Now you're wondering, what about the story is disgraceful? The fact that this is the only instance in all the years that the Jews were in the desert that they brought a carbon Pesach. Now in the face of it, you think, why is that disgraceful? What's what's wrong? Was it not God who decided that the Jews should only bring it this one time? But if we learn anything from this story, it's that if the Jews would have banded together and asked, demanded, humbly pleaded with God for additional opportunities to offer the carbon Pesach, it certainly would have been granted. The fact that they did not is something that Rashi tells us is something that is shameful. The Rebbe talks about how Moshe and Aaron didn't demand it because they would have been doing it on behalf of the people. It wouldn't be the people themselves. It needed to come from the people just as it did in this story. Again, I think we could take a very important lesson about the importance of pleading with God for an end to all suffering and hardships in the world. And in fact, we should go all the way and plead with God for an end to the exile for the coming of Mashiach. And this story teaches us that we need not limit ourselves to any reasonable requests. The people who demanded a second opportunity to bring the carbon Pesach, they were asking for something that was unprecedented. There's no other holiday or event or anything else that got a second chance. And yet they asked and they were granted. So, my friends, considering all that we have gone through over the centuries, asking for Mashiach is not unreasonable at all. It's unprecedented. But so was Pesach Sheni. We ask for what we need and God will grant it for us. One of the best ways of doing so is by getting together, as we talked about before. Our sages tell us that all the calamities, the tragedies, the destruction of the temple came about because of baseless hatred. But when we gather together as a community and demonstrate our unity, that's the antidote. That's unconditional love. That's what Lagba Omer is all about. Come join the community together at the Great Park Shul Monday evening. Lagba Omer for Shmuza, an event you don't want to miss. We'll be right back. Just a moment.
Hi FM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiva. Great to be here this afternoon. And we are talking about the great holiday of Pesach Sheni, not so well known, but fascinating insights and lessons that we can learn from it. So far, we talked about the importance of seeing ourselves as part of the community, just as the Jews in the Pesach Sheni story, they said, don't judge us as individuals who are impure, but rather because they were involved in a communal matter, taking care of the deceased. And then we analyzed it a little bit further. Hamash replied to them, stand by, he said, and I'll see what God will instruct me to tell you. The holiest Jews reach their spiritual achievements on account of everyone else, of the ordinary people that they represent. Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, if you stand by me, God will answer me. We're all in this together. And what's interesting is this is the only holiday or mitzvah for which we have a makeup date because it's the only holiday for which there was such a request. We are God's children. And when children ask with all their heart, their parents listen, even if they're busy and don't have time. But it's their child asking. And of course, the lesson is that maybe life circumstances sometimes prevent us from doing a mitzvah. Maybe we had missed certain opportunities. But it should bother us. It should bother us enough that we beg God for help. And if we plead and demand, God will grant it. So whatever mitzvah you may have missed out on in life, the Torah tells us the story to remind us to ask God. God will grant our request. And what's interesting is that the Torah records the story after telling us events that occurred weeks before this. Why is it out of chronological order? And Rashi explains that the story is somewhat disgraceful to the Jews because it was the only carbon Pesach that they actually brought in the desert. And the Torah wanted to delay in telling us a shameful story. And we wondered why they faulted. What's wrong? God's the one who gave them this instruction. So what's wrong with the fact that they didn't ask for other carbon Pesachs. But the story tells us that when we ask, we're given. They should have asked for more, even if they didn't feel like they were deserving. And God certainly would have answered. And this reminds us that we should not discount the power of prayer. We should plead with God to end all the suffering in the world. To bring about the ultimate redemption. That's what we need to ask God. Ask for what you want. Whether it's individual or communal. But there are more lessons we can learn. And let's see how much we could discuss in the remaining time. When God presented the Jews with Pesach Sheni. Hashem said that Jews would be eligible if they were impure. Or bederech rechoka on a distant journey during the first Pesach. How far away from the temple would one need to be to be considered in a distant journey? And the Talmud offers two opinions. One is that we would need to be as far away as the city of Modi'in, which is not so far. It's about 22 kilometers from Jerusalem. That's how far. But the other opinion is that one is considered at a distance even if they're just on the other side of the temple's door. Think about that. How do we define distance? 
Defining someone as distant from the temple, when they're literally right there lurking on the other side of the door, it seems odd. But if we unpack it a little bit, we can make sense. We learn a few things about how people feel. Why would a Jew spend their time outside the temple and not go in? Why not enter? You're just right there. You have an opportunity to offer the carbon Pesach. It's an easy and fabulous mitzvah. Lamb chops? Who could say no to that? But obviously we're talking about someone who's going through some kind of inner turmoil, some sort of crisis inside. They might be physically close, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, they feel distant. They're unwilling, they're unmotivated to enter the temple, even though they're standing right there. They can't get themselves to go in for an easy mitzvah. Does this count as being on a distant road? And yet we're told, of course it does. If you are outside the temple looking in, you're not far geographically. Maybe you'll enter the temple to offer the carbon Pesach. But we're not talking about geographic distance. We're addressing here someone who's outside of the temple looking out. They're not looking in. And this concept, this idea can happen to any of us. Life is a long journey. We face many challenges along the way. Sometimes we are close to the temple. We're close to holiness. But sometimes we stray. We may be physically close. We may still go through the motions and observe the things that we've been observing. But we're emotionally distant. We choose not to step into the temple. We choose not to get close to God for whatever reason. Ultimately, this feeling of alienation can only develop when we forget one essential truth. That there is no distance between the core of our identity, between our soul and God. They don't march in opposite directions. They're in complete harmony. This dissonance, call it, that we feel sometimes usually comes from a sense that there's me and there's him. Two different agendas, two different desires. But when we learn more about ourselves, when we learn more about God, when we understand our soul better, we come to realize there is no distance. And hopefully that empowers us to turn around, to enter the temple, to enter that holy sacred space. And that's the message of Pesach Sheni, is that even someone is unable to enter the temple, not because of geographic or physical distance, but because of emotional distance, they could still receive a makeup date. Maybe, perhaps, a person doesn't go into the temple because they feel unworthy of entering God's home. They look at their behavior. They consider their past deeds. Maybe they think, what a terrible person I am. Look what I did. How, you think God would want to hear from a person like me? The entire nation is in the temple celebrating Pesach. But this person feels imprisoned on the outside. They don't feel worthy. They don't feel able to, to come inside. The Baal Shem Tov taught that when a person has excessive humility, it could cause real problems when a person doesn't feel worthy. As Jews, we have to always remember that we're not unworthy strangers in God's home. We are God's children. We belong in God's home. 
God wants us there irrespective of our assumed levels of worthiness or not. God is thirsty for our present. God yearns to hear our prayers. If we think of ourselves in this way, then those thoughts won't enter. We won't hesitate. We won't, we won't be discouraged from going through the door. But we need to, we need to put ourselves in that right place. Once we step in, we're given a chance to make up for the mitzvahs that we missed. We begin with one mitzvah, we add another mitzvah and another mitzvah until we experience that whole complete transformation. And so I think this is another important lesson that we have to take from the story of the Karban Pesach. That the Torah is telling us, not only for them, but for future generations, the second Pesach offering could be brought by those who are impure or in a distant journey if only they tap into that opportunity. Because we realize that no matter where we are, we're on this journey of life. And sometimes we get knocked down. But failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if we stay down. And therefore Pesach Sheni reminds us that we are God's children. And regardless of what has happened, regardless of whatever our past has been, when we realize that deep down, we want what God wants. Then whatever distance we feel, it goes away. And we can enter the temple. And we should not feel unworthy regardless of our past. 